This is Beth Bruno, and you're listening to the Fierce and Lovely Podcast. On this podcast, I amplify the feminine voice and curate feminine glory so that you, my listener, find your own fierce and lovely story. It has become somewhat of a sacred journey for me to uncover the stories of women from around the world throughout time and present day. The more fierce and lovely women I explore, the more I fall in love with the one in whose image we reflect. My hope is that in this space, you embrace your own beautifully ordinary life as the majority story most of us are living. Hello and welcome to the Fierce and Lovely Podcast. This is Beth Bruno and this is where each week I am either talking to or about a woman who is walking those two words out in different ways. In light of where this conversation today ends, I'm wondering where you land with these two words, fierce and lovely. Have a look at the reflection questions in the show notes and grab a girlfriend to go deeper and consider what those two words mean to you. Well, we are still in the baby stages of the hashtag MeToo movement, and I imagine you all represent quite a spectrum. Some of you may be ready to finally disclose yourself, or you're angry about it all, or some of you may be quite fatigued by it. I want to encourage all of us to stay present because this conversation is so important in our own lives and in many of the people in our lives, whether we know it yet or not. I also want to encourage any of you who feel at all stirred by this conversation and you're ready to talk to someone to please seek a counselor um, to be able to, to really walk through that story with a professional. Well, Ruth Everhart is the author of Hashtag Me Too Reckoning and offers us wisdom from lived experience and leadership on this topic. But before we jump in, I want to tell you a few things. First, if you want to stay engaged with all things fierce and lovely, just go to bethbruno.org forward slash subscribe to receive just a monthly email from me curating fierce and lovely women I'm discovering in my own life. Second, I wanted to let you know that my husband and I have started a new podcast, and I'll link to that in the show notes as well. It's called the Walking With Podcast, and it's designed for those who are walking with others as lay counselors or ministry leaders or um, pastors, and it's conversations at the intersection of theology, psychology, and ministry. We are having so much fun doing that, so you can find it anywhere you get podcasts, so Walking With Podcast. And lastly, speaking of podcasts, just do me a favor and quickly just leave a star rating um, over in iTunes. As I keep saying, those ratings just help populate the show and put it in, in front of others and it continues to get the word out there and I would so appreciate it. So let's get into my conversation with Ruth about the Me Too Reckoning. Hi Ruth, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thanks, Beth. 
Glad to be here. I would love to just start off with having you tell my listeners a little bit about yourself. Uh, Who are you? Where are you? All of those things. I'm a Presbyterian pastor and author, and I live in the Washington, D.C. area with my husband of 35 years, and we have two grown daughters. And I saw somewhere that you own a cat and feel like that's just part and parcel of being an author. (laughs) That's right. Cat on lap. Right. <laughs> is there a cat on your lap right now? No, there is not. She is actually banished from my uh, study when I work. Okay. That probably makes sense. Mm. <laughs> well, Ruth, you have an upcoming book called The Me Too Reckoning, Facing the Church's Complicity in Sexual Abuse and Misconduct. And I want to dive right in. Um, don't I don't want to waste any time. Obviously, this is a book about the Me Too movement and uh, it comes out of your story. And so let's let's start there. Um, for listeners who may feel a little muddled with the history of the Me Too movement, I wondered if you can start by giving us kind of a nutshell of the background of, of what this thing is, where it came from, when it started. Um, does that make sense? Sure, because it's been a big cultural shift and it has some roots Um, The hashtag actually goes back to 2006, uh, but it didn't gain much traction until about a decade later. Perhaps you remember uh, the fall of 2017. Actually, it was October when the Harvey Weinstein story kind of took over the media one weekend and uh, just was uh, saturating the airwaves. And in response to that, women were putting on social media, or men if they were victims as well, um, hashtag me too. So from the beginning, it's been a way to express uh, solidarity or community with others who've experienced sexual assault. And so what I'm curious what happened between 2006, and I'm also curious about who and what started it then, but why was it dormant for a decade? Well, Tarana Burke, who is uh, an activist, was the person who coined it in 2006, and she used it um, to uh, for exactly the purpose that it's used now, which is to unite um, people who were victims and survivors and to really draw uh, attention to how prevalent sexual misconduct was. And I think there was just a broader um, shift in awareness. I, I had a memoir come out in 2016 called Ruined, which I wrote about a traumatic sexual assault. And I felt like that book was just about a year ahead of its time. Um, people had a hard time uh, talking about it publicly. Um, I feel like I've really been frontline watching this shift in, a, in um, not just awareness, but in the ability to speak about um, how frequently women are victimized um, and just the power of patriarchy right. in our world. Right. So really, we could say that that from the moment it began in 2006, I mean, not that this issue by any means, but the hashtag MeToo began, our culture was not as ready to talk openly and comfortably. And then news breaks in 2017 and all of these well-known, famous 
people start speaking out. Do you think that's what really began the domino effect of people, other women feeling much safer and protected in coming forward with their story? Yes, I would say that um, that's absolutely true. And just to mention then, in a sense, the beginning of the movement showed its prophetic quality. You know, the hashtag was, in a sense, a prophetic call and into the wilderness. And it uh, gained traction when people who had the power of voice uh, began to speak mm-hmm. up. Well, I can't presume to know where all of my listeners are with their understanding, their intimate knowledge, their personal experience with hashtag me too. But I imagine there's a few who feel fatigued by it in the sense that all news cycles and trend trends start to do that, to have that kind of effect. But so to speak into that, can you kind of explain what the state of things are now. So we're about two and a half years post the Harvey Weinstein scandal. Um, things have changed. So talk about how this has morphed into church to hashtag church to talk about what's happening now in the greater conversation in our culture, and even talk about what's kind of some of the changes are happening on a micro level in individuals. I know that's a lot of questions there. Feel, feel free to jump mm-hmm. on one and I'll come back to the others. Mm-hmm. Kind of stacked them up there. Well, and I, I just, to your comments about kind of being tired of it, I would really liken it to any large social justice movement, which is going to have various manifestations and various, uh, you know, episodes in its history. It's not a one and done kind of thing. It's not like, oh, there's a patriarchy and in 18 months, we're going to dismantle it. Right. Right. It's been around for a millennia or two or three, four. So no, this is going to be a long-term proposition. And in that sense, I liken it to the social justice movement for civil rights. I mean, uh, the race relations in our culture are not something that could be repaired in some short window of time. So I feel like this is a very similar kind of process. So I I do say to people, buckle up. You know, this is going to be a lifelong process. This is going to be a lifelong process for our children, our sons and our daughters. That's such a great point. And that's a great illustration or parallel, because even though civil rights is 60 plus years in terms of the the height of things in our nation, we are now as a white majority culture, I feel like just starting to face our own complicity, complicity in racism, our own white fragility, and that's taken decades. And so that's a, I love Mm -hmm. that analogy. Um, In many ways, we have just begun to dismantle patriarchy. Absolutely have. And that was with 400 years of a history of slavery. And in this case, we're dealing with millennia. So yes, it's, uh, it's going to be long-term proposition. Yeah. To fast forward then to you know, where we are now, I, I, and I, I think one of the reasons I wrote the book is to say to the church, um, why is it that uh, the field of entertainment and of media of, of corporate bureaucracy, of uh, sports, that these are the places that we're hearing the Me Too stories become exposed. Shouldn't the church be at the front line? Shouldn't we always be at the front line of a movement for justice since we follow Jesus Christ, who is all about justice? 
Um, but instead, I see what ha- has happened is that um, it broke in the media. It was in the world of entertainment. You think of some of the most uh, visible cases have been from those worlds. And I feel like uh, corporations that have a different kind of bottom line have been quicker to respond, uh, perhaps because they feel the need to stay in touch with cultural shifts. Um, Whereas the church has the sense of um, a legacy of, of um, in what I would say, an unearned sense of their own privilege in culture, and so wants to uh, protect its reputation. Um, so, of course, what we've seen, though, is various uh, Christian monoliths falling or at least being terribly shaken up by revelations of sexual abuse that are not necessarily recent, that go into the past quite a ways, but are finally now coming to the light. Of course, the first one was the Catholic Church. You think of the movie Spotlight, which just highlights or illustrates everything I've tried to mention. Um, Then you see the Southern Baptist Church, for instance, which just is continuing to have all these various repercussions from exposing charismatic leaders. And I'm not a Catholic. I'm not an evangelical. Well, we could talk about what that word means. Um, I'm not a conservative evangelical. Um, I am a progressive and I'm in the Presbyterian church USA. And that was a very deliberate choice because I was not raised in that denomination, but sought it out because I wanted a larger tent. I wanted a place that could embrace me and my gifts as a female. So um, I wasn't really interested in trying to say more about the Catholics or more about the Southern Baptists. I'll let them take care of their own houses. I I wrote this book to call attention to the dirt in the progressive liberal uh, denominations. So that's what my book focuses on. And so what I know that in many ways you're sharing you're sharing intimate stories from being a part of that denomination, that space. Um, but what are you seeing in terms of a, a shift? How are they handling this meta conversation? What are they what are you seeing is, is starting to be done or starting to, to be addressed in new and different ways? Or are you still not seeing that? I have not seen the kind of shifts and changes that I hope to see in the near future. And, um, and that's one reason I really wrote the book. It's a call to action. It's to say it is time. Um, having said that, you know, when you talk about sexual abuse, you're talking about it within the church, you're talking about really two things, prevention and response. And I think in the last decade, we have seen more movements towards prevention. Most churches now have child protection policies, you know, especially when we're talking about sexual abuse around children. Um, uh, churches are more on board, more proactive than they were a decade ago. I, I, would you agree? I with would that? agree. I've I've, I've even been trained in facilitating a stewards of darkness, like how to help your every teacher involved in working with children know just basic common things of how to protect them. I've seen that spread for sure. So there's a lot more that needs to be done with training, and I think um, the larger question now becomes around the role of women or vulnerable people and what kinds of safeguards they need and how a more truly 
equal society would change some of these dynamics. But there's also then the response piece. And what I'm seeing is some churches that I talk about in the book or, or in a church that um, similar to one of the stories in the book that I'm kind of in dialogue with now and how they're learning from what happened in this previous church. So that gives me some hope that there that we can learn from the past, that we don't have to repeat our mistakes and we can do things mm-hmm. differently. Well, as a pastor, you're a pastor, you're a national speaker and author, you're also a sexual assault survivor. So you you have all of this integrated. And as you have been traveling and interacting with other individuals, I'm curious what what you're hearing on the ground. Um you know, again, two and a half years into the sweep of this movement, what are other individuals starting to say and talk about and and feel themselves? Well, I'd say that a whole lot of people are saying me too. <clears throat> Excuse me. I hear more and more stories of people with similar experiences in the background, some kind of sexual assault or sexual harassment that has uh, been very damaging to their lives. Um, And they feel free to tell me those stories and uh, as a safe place to divulge them. What's more, more and more, I see those same people then telling their stories more widely. I see more women being more public with their stories and men too. There are plenty of uh, male survivors of different kinds of abuse also. So I'm grateful for that. When I'm in uh, speaking environments for clergy, oftentimes there are quite a few men present, and um, their reaction is usually a sense, I would, the word that comes to mind is chagrin, Um, like, gee, I didn't know it was so bad. The way you or I might feel if we were really confronted with some of the racist behavior our uh, sisters and brothers of color have had to face that we just maybe had not thought about before. So I get that reaction a lot from people that, so this is how it is. So it's time to change Hmm. this. And that's the power, of course, of narrative, of hearing a, a personal story that moves someone, which is why that's what I focus on mm-hmm. in my book. Um, I think really stories have the power to change the shape of culture. I, I imagine that same reaction is what many of us face when we begin to have some of these conversations with people we care about, whether they're our own pastor or church leaders, various ministry leaders. Um we want to help them understand and see this impact, whether it's because we ourselves have a story or we're just deeply involved. And so what would your some of your advice be when receiving that sort of chagrined response? Um, what, how would you begin to have that conversation as, as a woman who is interacting with a man who has that kind of response? What would you advise for her to to do and how to take the conversation into some next steps? Are you asking me um, from the point of view of, say, um, an assault survivor who needs to have her story heard? What's the agenda? Yeah, Ruth, I guess what I mean is either a woman who herself has experienced assault or a woman who just wants to help change the culture of her church and is being met with a, a male leader who is responding in that way where 
He gets that it's huge and feels badly about it, wants to do something, but really doesn't know what what beyond that. What would some advice be for that woman to begin to to take the conversation in different directions to help that male leader um, with some some next steps. Any advice for her? Well, this is a moment for education, right? A moment to say, I'm glad you've opened your eyes and now these are some of the things you could learn. So perhaps the best thing to do would be to suggest they read my book. Because <laughs> my book will go through, um, help them in many ways. I would point them to scripture, to the fact that these are not new problems. There is plenty of precedent that can be uh, employed to talk about sexual assault. Some of the stories I use um, in the book, for instance, the rape of Tamar or uh, the story of Bathsheba or um, many of the stories of Jesus. So yeah, we can kind of anchor ourselves in that place and then say, how can the church change its fundamental attitude towards women Uh, towards sexuality, towards power and how power works and how do we respond when people abuse their power. As it is now, there's the tendency to suggest that victims should um, be quiet, that somehow they've brought it on themselves, that they're causing a stir. And so it's time to um, uh, quit silencing victims and instead hold the abusers to account. Sure. And this and your book could be something actually that is read together on a leadership team, on a church staff team, and that would be really valuable. I I care a lot about um, women caring for other women, for our sisters. And I'm curious what what you've seen in regards to women responding well to other women who begin to share their story. Have you, have you seen that we're responding well in general? Do you, where do you see we could grow in how we're responding to each other? Well, I think there is a lot of solidarity. I mean, the movement, the hashtag me too is about um, finding each other and expressing not only that um, it, it, me too can mean, yes, I have a story too, or it can mean I, I hear you. And I I value your story. And I do see uh, survivors of all stripes um, uniting uh, around that. Of course, uh, we can bifurcate into all the, you know, various subdivisions of humanity that uh, we are prone to do. And so I think it's important to uh, not let our sense of being tired uh, get in the way. I mean, I was just reading some of the reactions to that new movie Bombshell about Megan Kelly and you know the partisan stuff that just kind of rises up is kind of interesting and I think it's to the point you raise which is just because we're all female just because we're all survivors or even if we're all survivors it doesn't mean we're all the like mind so I think what that calls us to do is to become a little more nuanced in our response and more able to talk about power dynamics and how can people who have experienced these negative things, how can they claim their power? I think there's a lot to be done there and for women to support each other as they're claiming their power, mm-hmm. um, to tolerate what we might want to call bitchiness or, um, are being annoyed or angry to be able to tolerate that from other, other women um, instead mm-hmm. of 
affecting each other. Right. And I like how you made the distinction that uh, identifying with hashtag me too is not necessarily saying, yes, I had my own story, but it's standing in solidarity. And I think uh, from women I might interact with, I, I would imagine that often there's a sense of distancing. If they don't have their own story, they're not even really engaging in the conversation. So how would you encourage women to just start having these open conversations about um, sexuality, sexual harm, stories of misogyny, patriarchy in their lives. What are some good conversation starters for women who would fall into that category? Oh, I think the things that you just surfaced um, are good starters to just say to each other, what were the messages you absorbed about what it means to be a woman? Um, what was told to you overtly in your home, in your church, in your school situation, what was the uh, message between the lines? So what did you learn about the way you were supposed to be in the world? And what about that is, um, you know, needs to be rebalanced or rectified? And um, I think, for instance, that the uh, chapters in my book, which have titles like power and patriarchy, silence and shame, accountability and justice... These raise all these really powerful words and themes that um, people can talk to. And depending on who the woman is, you know, the conversation around scripture can be helpful. Sometimes it could get in the way, I suppose. So you would need to know your audience, mm -hmm. who you're trying to reach. Right. But those would be great, great ways to start the conversation. Let's talk about mm -hmm. power. Let's talk about mm -hmm. um, patriarchy. Mm -hmm. That's great. Well, Ruth, right. and let's, let's talk about marriage. You know, mm -hmm. let's talk about the dynamics between men and women. Let's talk about what how it works with you and your male colleagues. Let's talk about the different messages you give your sons and your daughters, and why those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Those are great, and I think as soon as we stop being afraid to have those conversations um, and to to start being more honest with ourselves and with our own story and. Uh, with one another, especially as sisters, as fellow women, the more change we'll start to see. So Ruth, thank you. Um, can't wait for, for your book to come out, The Me Too Reckoning. Let's let's kind of conclude. I want to make sure we have time to hear from, from you about your thoughts on the words fierce and lovely. Um, where do you see those in your life? How are they intersecting? Um, and just in general, how do they sit with you? I have to confess to you that the word lovely is kind of a difficult word for me in the sense that it's so feminized. And I think that um, the purity culture in which I was raised taught me that women are supposed to be feminine, which meant silent. It meant, meant dutiful and demure. And so I bring some of that same kind of gendered baggage to that word. And so it's easier for me in a way as a feminist to grab the word fierce um, I, I guess if I had to summarize it, I might say that I was raised to be lovely and I have claimed the right to be fierce. Mm. But that fierceness really is a form of being lovely of be, if, in the sense of being beautiful, of being what God intended us to be. You know, it's just, uh, I'm sure you, you, I'd love to know why you paired those two words together. You know, if there was kind of a balance for you between them mm -hmm. or a tension. 
Mm-hmm. Well, I love hearing everybody's reactions to them, and it's been across the board um, in terms of where women most identify with those words. And there's been plenty of reactions against the word lovely, which is why I honestly love to continue to ask uh, my guests because uh, I know that it has all of mm-hmm. these connotations in culture, and I too grew up in the purity culture, so I, mm-hmm. I get that for sure. I think... Um, as I wrestle and continue to wrestle, I don't have this all figured out, but I'm wrestling with the idea of how we as women reflect the image of God uniquely. What is it about God that is embodied in us as women? And I'm trying to figure out what we share inherently because if as all women throughout time and throughout culture. So what is true about us, um, not just about us as American women, for instance. And when I look at um, the the feminine descriptions of God, the mother heart of God. And when I look at the way that women have been in history, I see this embodiment of fierce and lovely. So for example, I was just um, reading, I, I'm really, a, I love history. I'm not a history buff by any means, but I love it. And I love historical fiction. And this summer we went to France. So I was learning all about the um, march on the Palace of Versailles um, that launched the French Revolution and how it was women uh, who were demanding that the b- cost of bread come down. And the women gathered together and marched on the palace and stormed the palace and brought the, the king and queen into Paris and, and all the things began. Well, it was out of their, that fierce, we are feeding our family that that they did that. The same thing happened in the 80, 1980s in Ireland when the British, it was the, the conflict and the British had taken over like martial law and they had created all of these boundaries and curfews and a group of women stormed the barricade demanding access to food to feed their families. And so it's, I guess I see this combination of women who fiercely act out of a mothering instinct, whether or not they have children. And it's, it's the, that lovely of, I am providing for another. I am caring for another that leads me into action that would lead me into an act of war. And those two things I see embodied in all of us across time that I think represent God. That's just one way I'm beginning to wrap my mind around it. But I don't see, I don't think of lovely and think of physical. I don't think of um, girliness in any way. I think of more the mother heart of God um, coming out in our fierce actions. So that's, wow, a long-winded um, response to that question. But that's how I'm beginning to think about those two words for my life. What do you think about that? Well, thanks for giving me the chance to respond because I I loved hearing your response the one thing I would kind of push you on is you kind of repeat the phrase mother heart of God. I think of who's fierce and lovely. I think of Jesus Christ. And I I think that it goes beyond this kind of gendered um, motherhood or even for the next generation. I mean, what if those women had stormed the gates because they were hungry and not just their children? I mean, at what point are we allowed to, uh, to act primarily out of our own self-interest, you might say, because we are deserving of bread? That's the one thing I think I would push you on in your, uh, in your response. How, mm-hmm. how do you respond to that? That's interesting. Yeah, because I do tend to think that that is 
that's often the motivation that women have for action is we're thinking of others. And it's not just children. Maybe we're thinking the women who think about their community first. Um, I, I just see globally women tend to be less self-centered. And I guess you could say it's because we've never had the privilege to be. We've never give it, been given that opportunity. And so it's been just embedded in us in what maybe we feel free to, to do. Um, so it might be that. But it might be that's because that's something inherent in us in the yeah, core. Yeah, I hear you really being. wrestling with these so, gender issues in a way that's interesting. And, you know, it goes right to the heart of what I'm writing about with sexual assault, because it's the, the, the dynamics between the two genders and, and what's appropriate. And there can be uh-huh. negative outflows from what seem like, a, um, a, a perfectly reasonable posture. Right. To, to assume, if I'm assuming that that's a spiritual truth, and yet as a result of that assumption, some negative right. consequences mm-hmm. arise. I get that. That's why, I'm, mm-hmm. that's why I said I'm still wrestling, um, still trying to figure that out and put language to it. And that's why I love asking my guests what their thoughts are. Cause I, and I love the pushback. I love the both the back and forth. Um, I find that to be really rich. And I want to model that for my listeners to have these kinds of conversations with the women in their life. Um, That's really what I want out of this show. So thank you for being willing to do that with me, even briefly um, on this show today, Ruth. And uh, I just appreciate your um, work and appreciate the the book that you are giving us. Um, And I'll put all of the details in the show notes about how people can find it. So thanks so much for being on the show Thanks so much for having me. I enjoyed it very much. And I did a appreciate the back and forth. So you go ahead, keep modeling that. 